So I'd like to offer just a, a few reflections now uh, as we continue our exploration of these heavenly messengers. And a bit of a recap first. Last week I introduced the Buddha's core teachings on the Four Noble Truths as a framework for this whole exploration. Because it's that framework of the Four Noble Truths that really allows us to transform the unwanted, the unpleasant, the painful aspects of our lives into experiences that actually strengthen wisdom and compassion so that we can live with more ease, happiness, peace and freedom. And it feels important to start each one of our sessions with that reminder because these topics of aging, of sickness, of death, climate change, racism, social injustice, these are not ones that we normally willingly turn towards. So we need to keep orienting to the last of the heavenly messengers, which is the contemplative or the spiritual practitioner, to remind us that facing into these difficulties is what helps cultivate the resources to meet them without falling into the habitual reactivity that only makes the distress worse. So picking up where I left off last time, we looked at the first noble truth of dukkha in relation to aging. And then in your home practice, you're invited to ex begin to explore the second heavenly messenger of sickness. And as many of you recognize, whether we're dealing with the dukkha of aging or of sickness, in both cases, if there's no mindfulness, no wisdom, we tend to relate to dukkha with various types of clinging, resistance, identification. So as you might remember from last week, the Buddha named this clinging as a key component of dukkha when he stated, in short... The five clinging aggregates are stressful. So just briefly again, the five clinging aggregates being material form, including the body, feeling tone, perceptions, volitional mental formations, and consciousness. I'm going to be exploring these um, over the next few weeks. But last week we looked at clinging in relation to material form, to the body, specifically the body's impermanence aging, vulnerability to illness. And a big part of the training in resilience that's the focus of this course is being able to recognize that clinging more and more clearly, more and more quickly, so that we can help it to release. So clinging is a kind of an umbrella term for any kind of struggle with experience, either wanting it to continue or wanting it to stop, so clinging or resisting. And many of you have heard me um, share a formula for this that the U.S. Dharma teacher Shinzen Young came up with. It's a mathematical formula to describe our habitual reaction to dukkha. And it is S equals P times R. Suffering equals pain multiplied by resistance, S equals P times R. 
And on one level, that's quite obvious. The more we fight reality, the more we lose. But it's also worth pointing out that suffering is pain multiplied by resistance. It's not pain plus resistance. So there's a powerful amplifier effect when we get caught in resisting our suffering. So there's one particular form of resistance that amplifies that clinging even more, and that's the tendency to identify with our experience, to take it personally, to make it all about me, mine, who I am. So I sometimes change Shinzen Young's formula to S equals P times I. Suffering equals pain multiplied by identification. So that tendency to create an identity, a sense of I at the center of all our life dramas, which again only compounds the distress. And some of you have recognized that syndrome very clearly in relation to aging and sickness just over the last two weeks. But, at least in my own experience, sometimes just being able to recognize, yes, there's resistance, there's identification, seeing it in action, that's not enough to help it release. So today I wanted to zoom in a bit more closely to look at, well, how do those different forms of reactivity and identification happen? So coming back to the five clinging aggregates this week, uh, focusing a bit more on the second of them, which is feeling tone or Vedana, to use the Pali term. Vedana or feeling tone is a technical term and it refers to just the bare recognition of any experience we have as registering as either pleasant, unpleasant, or neither. In other words, neutral. So exactly what we were just doing in the guided meditation. And this recognition of feeling tone is an automatic function of our nervous system. It's happening on a basic level of consciousness, and we don't have any control over it. So every sense contact, in other words, every sight, every sound, every smell, every taste, every physical sensation, every form of mental activity is automatically registered as either pleasant, unpleasant or neutral. And most of the time that categorizing is happening just below the level of full consciousness. So I understand that it's coming from the more primitive part of the brain, our reptilian brain. And it seems to have originated from a time in our evolution when we needed to work out very quickly whether something out there was going to eat us or whether we could eat it or perhaps whether we could mate with it. So it's a very rough and uh, ready processing system. But as the brain evolved, that basic fight-flight response stayed with us. And we just learned to overlay it with apparently more sophisticated reasons and rationales for doing what we do. So in my own experience, my own practice, it was quite humbling to learn about Vedana and to recognize just how fundamentally it's playing out in my own experience. 
Because before I came into this understanding of Vedana, I believed that I was a relatively sophisticated human being and that I was making informed, intelligent choices in relation to my complex life. But when I started to pay attention to Vedana, I realized that actually I'm not that different from an amoeba. Just as a single-celled amoeba kind of blobs towards what it likes and blobs away from what it doesn't like or just stays still and static if nothing much is going on, I'm more or less doing the same. The main difference between me and an amoeba is probably the delusion that I'm a highly sophisticated human being. So maybe that sounds like an exaggeration, but check it out in your own experience. If you think back over some of the um, choices you made today, chances are that most of what you did, either, or even right now, what you're doing right now, on a very basic level is motivated by the movement towards pleasant or away from unpleasant. Or if it's neutral, probably that wanting to find something more stimulating to get involved with. There's nothing wrong or bad about this experiencing of Vedana. It's happening automatically as a normal function of our nervous system. So even if we wanted to, we couldn't stop it from happening. It's yet another aspect of our experience that we're not in control of. But, and this is a big but, even though it's mostly unseen, it has a very powerful effect on how we live our lives. Because when clung to or resisted, it's the basic building block of all of our reactivity. And when we can release from that reactivity, that's the gateway to freedom. So I'd go so far as to say that every one of our problems, every one of the world's problems, comes from our lack of ability to relate skillfully to Vedana. Every personal conflict, every war started as a result of not being able to relate skillfully to Vedana. So paying attention to Vedana has an ethical dimension to it, which is probably why the Buddha puts so much emphasis on this apparently simple aspect of being human. Because when there's no mindfulness, these three feeling tones tend to strengthen the three core afflictive energies known as greed, hatred and delusion. So that movement into greed, hatred and delusion can happen moment to moment, but also over the course of our whole lives. Each time that we react unconsciously to pleasant, unpleasant or neutral stimuli, we're strengthening those neuronal pathways. Pleasant feeling tones strengthen wanting, which turns into the habit mind of greed. Unpleasant feeling tones strengthen not wanting. And when that reaction becomes habitual, it strengthens the habit mind of hatred or aversion. Neutral feeling tones, when not seeing clearly, strengthen not knowing or ignoring. 
And when that reaction becomes habitual, it turns into the habit mind of delusion or ignorance. So the more unconsciously we react to these feeling tones, the more greed, hatred and delusion become the default setting of our mind. So in modern neuroscience terms, neurons that fire together wire together. So feeling tones affect our basic reactions, our thoughts, our emotions, our moods, our mind states, and then we take those reactions to be me, mine, who I am. So how does this affect our relationship to sickness and pain? So as many of you noticed, when we experience illness or pain and there's no mindfulness, there's often an inner chain reaction that goes straight from registering the unpleasant sensation to reacting to it with anger, fear, anxiety, despair, then taking that personally, identifying with it, becoming a victim perhaps, or eternalizing it, catastrophizing it, assuming that this is how it's going to be forever, or that it's the beginning of the end. That throbbing, throbbing in my forehead must be caused by a brain tumor. It's only a question of time before I get that diagnosis. That's a common example, but the more closely we can stay to the immediacy of the experience, just the physical sensations, just the feeling tone, we can save ourselves a whole lot of extra stress and distress. So developing the capacity to stay present and mindful of the body's physical sensations not only helps to relieve the distress of the illness and the pain, it also strengthens wisdom. And we can specifically direct that understanding to support anatta or not-self, the wisdom of not taking experiences personally, not identifying with them, and specifically in relation to pain and illness, we can give up the delusion that our bodies are completely under our control. And the more we can release the grip of that identification, the tendency to take it so personally, the more we start to see the universality of suffering. We start to understand that that dukkha is not unique to me. It's not due to my individual shortcomings. It's just an aspect of being human. Dukkha is arising due to conditions. Not me, not mine, not who I am. So next time you're experiencing some kind of pain or illness, you might experiment with consciously turning towards that understanding as an antidote to any tendency to collapse into the feeling that it's my fault or I'm a victim or I've done something wrong or I'm the only one in the world who's feeling bad right now. And even if it's just an imaginative exercise, you might acknowledge that somewhere in the world of 7 million people, somebody is likely to be going through something similar to what you're going through right now. So there's an example of this from my own life. Some of you have heard it's not a particularly beautiful example. It's actually a bit gross. 
but perhaps you can relate to it even so. So a few years ago now, I was on retreat at the Forest Refuge in Massachusetts, and just before the retreat started, I was prescribed a course of three very strong antibiotics to deal with a chronic health condition that I'd had for a while. And I was warned that these antibiotics could cause intense nausea, but generally speaking, I don't easily get sick, so I thought, well, I'll be okay. But from the very first day of taking them, from the minute I woke up in the morning until I went to bed at night, I felt like I was just on the verge of vomiting. And a few times I did actually vomit. But I was on retreat, so I had the opportunity to try to keep meditating with that discomfort. But pretty much every, all that was in my mind was, when am I going to throw up again? Where's the nearest bathroom? If there's not a bathroom, is there a bucket somewhere? My whole world shrank into just being me and my stomach. And after a while, that started to feel pretty claustrophobic. So I tried to find a way of opening that up, and I decided to think about all the other people in the world who in that moment might also be experiencing nausea or vomiting. So I brought to mind all the pregnant women going through morning sickness, or all the sailors out at sea in storms suffering from seasickness. I thought about all the people going through chemotherapy, perhaps unable to eat. And I even thought about all the people with hangovers telling themselves, never again. And I imagine millions of people all around the world, all of us retching together in unison. And surprisingly, this brought up some lightness, some happiness alongside the compassion. So that's just one pretty small example of how wisdom and compassion might support each other. Because when I was able to see clearly that my distress, suffering wasn't just mine, and that there were probably plenty of others around the world in that moment experiencing something similar, it helped me connect to the wisdom of anatta, that nothing is personal and I'm not in control. And with that wisdom, there was a new sense of lightness and openness and almost literally more room in the heart and the mind for compassion to grow. So in this way, wisdom and compassion are inseparable expressions of our practice. Most of us, though, need some training to develop both of these, what are known as two wings to awakening equally. I think because in the, the development of the Western insight tradition so far, we've generally put more emphasis on wisdom. And if the heart practices are taught, there tends to be most emphasis on metta or kindness rather than compassion. So I'd like to say a little bit more about compassion now, beginning with what's a pretty common question. What's the difference between metta and compassion? So metta is usually taught as a quality of kindness, as a kind of generic or generalized friendliness and goodwill. Compassion, on the other hand, 
is grounded in the same kindness, but it's kindness turned specifically towards pain, stress, distress, suffering. So compassion is what flowers naturally when metta encounters dukkha, when kindness comes into contact with suffering. So one difference that's been important in my own practice is that whereas compassion orients directly towards pain, metta is more generalized. So it's possible to misuse metta as a way to disconnect from dukkha, to apply it as a kind of superficial salve to cover over our hurt. And in my own practice, it took me a while to recognize that at times that was what I'd been doing. So there were times in my practice where I would be mechanically reciting meta phrases, such as, may I be safe, may I be healthy, may I be happy, may I know peace. But when I investigated a little more deeply, what I was actually saying was, I hate this, get it away from me, why isn't this over, just make it safe, make it go away, may I be safe, may I be healthy. So rather than turning directly to my distress, I was using metta as a way to distance myself from it, unconsciously trying to make it go away through a kind of metta-flavored magical thinking. But with compassion practice, because the phrases point directly to suffering, they're not so easy to cheat with. And they can give us a very powerful antidote to that usual tendency to avoid dukkha. So some of you might already have compassion phrases that you've been working with. I'd like to uh, offer some that have been helpful in my own practice. I'm aware of this pain. I care about this pain. May this pain release. May I know peace. So pretty simple. I'm aware of this pain. I care about this pain. May this pain release. May I know peace. And the first two phrases can help to illuminate any resistance to being with the pain. So at times in my own practice when I've said I'm aware of this pain, I care about this pain, Something in me goes, no, I'm not, not really. But that's useful information to see that resistance. And the second two phrases provide a reminder that all of this practice is oriented to the release, the relief of pain. So in my own practice, it was important to be able to see the resistance because this is such a normal, natural human reaction to suffering. But the point of compassion practice is not to try to blast through those defenses, but to cultivate this capacity to care very gently. And especially in the context of this course, we're touching into topics and themes that by their very nature can bring up strong reactions. So it's important to respect our own defenses. Forcing ourselves to negate them would be counterproductive, even violent. 
So we're finding the middle way between not trying to blast through those defenses, but also not just reflexively, habitually avoiding what's difficult. And this finding the middle way is a training. So remembering that likewise compassion is a training. If we're touching into something that's pretty difficult, we might agree to care about it for 10 seconds. That's all. Then after 10 seconds, we deliberately turn our attention to something that's either neutral or pleasant so that we don't get overwhelmed by the pain. So again, this is where the feeling tones of pleasant, unpleasant, neutral can be very helpful. We agree to stay with the pain for as long as we can, but if the mindfulness is starting to wither, then we need to give ourselves a break and orient to what's nourishing, pleasant, to cultivate that resilience. So we might at times need to literally or metaphorically bow out and return to mindfulness of breathing for a while or go for a walk or have a cup of tea or play with a dog or talk to a friend. This is not cheating as people sometimes think. And it's not that we're missing a valuable opportunity to be with Dukkha. Chances are something will come back again before too much longer. So it's not like you're missing your one-shot chance to explore it. And it's better to come back to it when we have more resilience, more resources. So this is a, another huge field we could explore. I don't have time to go into it in detail now, but I will include some links on Compassion on Canvas this week. And for now, just to acknowledge that for many people, self-compassion is the biggest challenge. For many people, having some degree of compassion for other people, other beings, flowers to some extent. But just the idea of offering it to oneself can go against some pretty deep societal, family and individual conditioning. For example, some religious tra traditions value putting others before ourselves so we can interpret it as selfish to put ourselves to include ourselves in the compassion. And I would say particularly for women, this attitude has been strongly reinforced. There's this idea that women sacrifice their own well-being for the sake of their families and so on. Generally speaking, compassion is sometimes associated with weakness. Though when we actually take it on as a practice, we quickly discover how much courage it takes to connect with pain. So even though this is only week three of this course, I've been really inspired by how much all of you already are willing to do that, to turn towards pain, to dukkha, and to find the gift within it. So the idea of dukkha as a gift might sound counterintuitive, perhaps because I think most of us, consciously or unconsciously, wish that our practice was about experiencing bliss states as deeply and as continuously as possible. But if we look back over the arc of our practice, it's probably the times that were not blissful that we learned the most 
that our practice deepened. So if we learn how to relate to suffering in the right way, it gives us a powerful opportunity to deepen wisdom and compassion. And through that process, the heart and the mind eventually become completely free of all afflictive states. And from there, it becomes increasingly possible to meet the suffering in our families, our communities, our societies with the same compassion. So the practice shifts from being self-centered to other-centered, or actually you could say non-centered because the distinction between self and other dissolves. We experience the truth of interconnectedness on deeper and deeper levels. Interconnectedness not only among human beings, but all the beings that we share this planet with. So in this way, wisdom and compassion fuse, and our Brahma-Vihara practice becomes truly boundless, without limits, for the benefits of all beings everywhere. That is where this whole practice, this whole exploration is leading. So thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.